0: From Kirkco Media. Well, the stage has been set. A new appointment is on the Supreme Court in Amy Coney Barrett. An election week that could put this conservative Supreme Court in the position of deciding who the leader is of the free world for the next four years. And the reality that up next for the Supreme Court is Obamacare, or should I say Biden Care now? And some foresaw this, some denied that it was really possible, but Roe v. Wade seems back in play again. In a week when our democracy is on the line, when every fiber that holds our Constitution together is being tested by a divided society, we're focusing this show on the role that the Supreme Court may play in determining America's path forward. This is Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, with me for this pivotal moment, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who's spent decades in the conflict resolution business, fighting for U.S. economic interests to high-level government officials all over the world. She's also the president of the local chapter of the Democratic Club. Hey, Jane, nice to see you. How are you holding up during this crazy week?
1: Just fine. Just fine, Bill. Always good to see you.
0: And of course, Ed Larson. Professor Ed Larson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, a prolific lecturer, and a beloved professor at Pepperdine University. Ed, it's so nice to see you here during election week.
2: Well, hello on this grim week when our nation is surging day after day to new record numbers of COVID infections.
0: Well, hopefully we can, we can figure out a way to reverse that. Ed, we've invited back your good friend to help guide us through this important moment, this trek through our democracy.
2: Truly, it's fitting that in when the United States Senate confirmed Amy Barrett at, on a strictly partisan vote, it's appropriate that we welcome back retired attorney and appellate advocate Ed Warren. A lifelong Republican, Ed long led the appellate advocacy section of the elite Kirkland & Ellis legal mega firm, where he knew and often worked with all of the republicans who now sit on that republican dominated supreme court now of counsel he lives in two fabulous homes one on the beach in malibu and another in the mountains of montana this is a joyous week for ed and i'm happy to share it with him but ed fair warning for i believe for this supreme court podcast the producer tried to get cnn chief legal correspondent jeffrey Tubin. But fortunately, he had his hands full already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ed Warren, about a year ago on this show, I asked a very wise man what would happen if RBG passed away and Trump actually got a third pick for the Supreme Court. Mr. Warren, that wise man was you. Do you remember your prediction? I don't remember my prediction. Okay, well, hold on just a second. Let me press play.
3: Well, that's really going to be a tough decision, if it happens, because I think his instinct is going to be to a point, if I had to pick someone, this Notre Dame professor who's now in the Seventh Circuit, this woman who is a Catholic, and, you know, I, she's a, she, that would be a in-your-face kind of nomination were it to occur. I don't know what, what, what will happen. I think it will be a big problem. I'd be happy if Ruth Ginsburg stays there for a while
0: it sounds like your prayer wasn't answered but your prediction certainly was absolutely right on the money ed
3: well i'm actually surprised that i picked her out a year ago or nine months ago or whatever it was because i really didn't know that much about her except that i figured if ginsburg were to step down or were to die uh, that it would be selection of a woman. I subsequently have learned a lot more about her, as I guess we all have. And the first thing that struck me was that she clerked not just for Justice Scalia, but almost more importantly than that, she clerked for Larry Silberman on the D.C. Circuit. And he has had the longest list of superlative clerks, I think, of any federal appellate judge. So I, that's really an endorsement of her quality as a lawyer that I was unaware of at the time. But anyway, yes, uh, that was a lucky pick on my part.
0: It seems that there are not a lot of people who are trying to impeach her for character or quality or education or her professionalism. It just It's the process and the timing that has caused such issues. Mr. Larson, regarding the possibility of this last-minute RBG replacement nomination, I asked another wise man about a year ago if Democrats had found some way to stall or delay the vote, if they could, and if McConnell would hesitate to be hypocritical given the GOP's Senate's refusal to confirm Garland in 2016, some nine months prior to the election. Mr. Larson, do you know who that wise man was a year ago? I'm trusting you're going to give a tape
2: from something I said.
0: In studio, so you sound better. Here, let me press play. Do you think that there's a chance that the Democrats may succeed in finding a way to block that vote through filibustering or some other method on the Senate? No, I don't.
2: I think that Mitch McConnell is a master of maneuvering the Senate. He's a master of the rules of the Senate. And just as he was able to keep a perfectly qualified judge from even getting a vote for a year in in the last year of the Obama administration. He won't follow that precedent. He's already said that he would run a
0: judge through faster than a bat out of hell. Well, Ed, welcome to a bat out of hell.
2: Yeah, I guess he did just that. This is a record confirmation. No judge has ever been confirmed this fast in all of American history. And uh, the sad thing about it is not, as, as I agree with you, it's not about her qualifications or lack of qualifications, but I fear it further undercuts the institutional status of the Supreme Court, because to the public, it's all partisanship. It's all political parties. And now we have six Republican judges and three Democratic judges. And that's not the way it was intended. That's not how the Supreme Court was intended to work.
0: Doesn't it seem, Jane, like this whole thing was quite planned and kind of executed with precision? I mean, at the start of the Trump presidency, McConnell engineered Senate rules changes that allowed confirmation by majority of the 100 senators instead of what was traditional, which was a 60 vote threshold to advance a high court nominee over objections. It seems like all all the way back then, McConnell has been pretty much at the steering wheel of this process for some time
1: don't think any of it's surprising. They have the vote. The one answer President Trump gave at the first, I think it was the first debate, when he asked about it, he said, you know, elections have consequences. They have the votes. They can affirm her. When they made the perfect piece of nonsense rule that they wouldn't rule on Merrick Garland nine months before the election, that had, everybody knew that was nonsense. It was about having the votes. It's about power.
0: Ed Warren, just to to revisit a year ago, you and I had a nice back and forth because you felt very strongly that the Supreme Court really wants to avoid the image of being rather partisan in their process. Do you still feel that way today?
3: Yeah, I really do. And I think uh, the last year's worth of decisions confirm that because I think John Roberts is an institutional player before anything else. And I think what you're going to see, I'm I'm not, I'm not as disturbed about the direction of the court as some others are, because I think John Roberts is going to try to keep the court away from highly polarizing decisions. And I think to the extent that he needs additional help apart from the three Democratic appointees, he's likely to get it probably first of all, from Brett Kavanaugh, who is himself an institutional player. Now, personally, I know Brett well enough to feel pretty confident in that judgment, but maybe I'll turn out to be wrong. This whole thing has an inevitability about it. And I think the Democrats, can, criti- should be criticizing themselves for the way in which they have played these judicial nominations. As Lindsey Graham has said repeatedly in these hearings, I voted for every one of these Democratic appointees. We had nonpartisan confirmations for all of them. And when the Democrats wanted to get more people on the D.C. Circuit, they did away with the 60-vote rule for appellate judges. And once they, they did that, and inevitably Trump was going to get Supreme Court nominations himself, they balkanized the vote so that there was going to be no Democratic votes, even for somebody like Neil Gorsuch, who I think is going to turn out to be a real wild card on the court. And that then the filibuster was taken away, because the Republicans, as James said, had the vote. But you have
0: to admit, Ed, that the Republicans have been publicly clear about why they're excited about these last three court appointees. They've been clear about this one with Amy Coney Barrett and why they wanted it to be before the election. That wise man said about a year ago on our show that the court really wants to avoid that. Actually, hold on, let me press play for a second.
3: Everybody on the court, wants to avoid the perception that the court is another legislature, that it's political, that it's predictable.
0: That was you last year. And what I found interesting about that, because I love listening back to tapes and I'm very careful, and you're obviously extremely good at making sure that every sentence is precise, because you just said everyone on the court wants to avoid the perception that the court is political.
3: I believe that.
0: And I realized that last year we didn't talk about the reality. We just talked about the perception. And certainly you have to admit that fellow Republicans are making it very clear that they believe the court is now partisan and will execute on their goals.
3: I think perception depends upon the reality of what the court does and the way it handles uh, cases that come before it. I think there's a, there's a real distance between what you hear in the press and what you see even Republican senators saying and the reality of the way the court views its job.
1: Well, I think to pretend that the partisanship in the Senate has been primarily Democratic is not accurate at all. When you look at what happened during the Obama administration, the fact that so many judges w- were held up This is why the filibuster was was lifted. And secondly, the refusal to do their constitutional duty, to even move forward with the Merrick Garland thing, this is also packing the court, and it's highly political. So to pretend that this was just a Democratic thing is just not factually accurate. Okay,
0: but Jane, you have to look at the last month or so and what Roberts accomplished by deadlocking this key election case. Breaking away from the other four conservative justices and joining with the three liberals, he denied the Republicans the ability to block Pennsylvania's state court ruling that extended the deadline for delivery of in mail ballots by three days. And you could have heard a pin drop in Washington when they saw that Roberts did that.
1: Yeah. So who were the who were the judges that um, that opposed that decision? Who were the justices? Well, there was that a, opposed
3: it was four votes. But it was it was Roberts plus the three Democratic appointees.
1: So name the justices that oh, was, were not. It
3: was in, Kavanaugh and and Gorsuch, and Thomas and Alito,
1: two two Trump appointees, and now there will be another. But but,
3: one. Uh, but Ed's point, Jane, is that the court
0: worked. It did work because Roberts sees himself as pretty much how Ed described the court in the past, which was that once appointed often the judge's politics tends to fall away and they actually consider their obligation seriously.
2: I'd feel better about that if such a string of emergency rulings haven't come down over the past month, almost invariably favoring the Republican side. But I also agree with Ed that the proof's in the pudding. And the upcoming election, if the court does not interfere with the upcoming election, And if it decides, as Ed suggests, on the Affordable Care Act, then this court will go a long way toward reestablishing some notion in the public
3: of not being a partisan court. Let's go back for a second to Garland. What you really want is institutional players, people that are real lawyers, and decide cases. So why didn't the Republicans approve it? Because they had the power. you were exactly right.
1: But why didn't they want them? Well,
3: why didn't they want him? Because, they're, because they figured they could do better when, if, if on the off chance, and it was really an off chance that Trump was going to win the election.
1: And that that's not intensely partisan.
3: But that doesn't have anything to do with the court. The court court is a different institution than the Congress. But
1: it is played. The Kavanaugh, I know you know Brett Kavanaugh. Right. And as a person, you like him. But he disgraced himself in those hearings. And it's not because of Blasey Ford. It was because of the vitriolic partisanship. He had had thousands of professors. He had people that he knew at Yale. He had former Supreme Court justices Writing letters saying that they thought he had disqualified himself because of his intense partisanship.
0: I think what we're arriving at here is that you feel that the intentions of the court are often pure, but it seems like more than ever, they're surrounded by pressure, especially from the Republicans to actually adjudicate in a partisan manner. You have to look at the way Trump publicly said to the Republican-led Senate that he wanted them to confirm Barrett before Election Day, saying he expects the Supreme Court to decide the outcome of the election. Well,
3: I I think that's not going to happen. I think the the public is going to decide the outcome of the election, not the Supreme Court. I do think, and Ed pointed out, I agree with Ed to an extent, That when you have a 4-4 decision like this on an emergency basis, you're providing no guidance for the lower courts. The biggest problem I had with the Garland thing was that the court was going to be in a 4-4 deadlock for a considerable period of time. And that's exactly what happened. It was almost a year. And that's,
1: so is that a reason for the Senate not to perform their constitutional duty? No, it was
3: a reason why they should have performed their constitutional duty. But the, as you say, quite correctly, they had the power to stop it, and they did. And
1: For partisan reasons. Well, well for purely partisan, partisan well, reasons. He, he, he was a qualified justice. No one disputed that.
0: But the politicians are being political, Jane. But I think Ed's point is that the courts themselves tend to operate in a more altruistic manner and they take their obligation to the court seriously.
2: One other issue that could arise, and I pray that it doesn't, would be if we go back to the precedent of 1876, when you get contested electors coming out of the same state. There it was three Southern states and you had different parties sending electors forward. And so the fear would be that, that you have some sort of vote in some state. And the fear is that the Supreme Court would try to decide which is valid. Now the constitution clearly doesn't give that power to the Supreme Court. It clearly gives that power to Congress, but that's one of the fears that's talked about And if the Supreme Court, especially since that totally violates the original meaning of the text of the Constitution, if the Supreme Court trying to get involved with that, I think we're going to see protests in the streets. I hope they won't.
0: I do, too. But Ed Warren, can I just ask you a a question? Because I think we should dissect some of these one at a time. What are the likely cases that would be put in front of the Supreme Court, putting the court in the position of deciding the outcome of this election.
3: I don't know much about these individual state cases. I do know, coincidentally, that my law firm was the successful counsel in the Pennsylvania case. So the good lawyering oftentimes prevails, whatever the merits of the uh, case is. But I think it's unlikely that, there will be any case that will go up. But, you know, you, you can say it's unlikely, but then you can say, well, look what happened in Florida in 2000. It's possible, but I think unlikely.
0: You have to look at what so many Republicans are saying publicly. Pat- Patrick Leahy said Trump sees Barrett as an election insurance, saying he wants her to side with him when he makes his yeah. claims of, for uh, mail-in voting fraud. And so
3: the court is going to be so afraid of having a repeat of the 2000, that they are gonna steer clear of this to the maximum extent possible. I'm not saying that it's impossible that you could get one state situation, Florida or, or some other state, Pennsylvania, let's say, where that's decisive and there's fraud and corruption and you know charges on both sides. It's possible, but I think unlikely.
0: Just to remind our listeners what they're hearing, back in 2000, a conservative Supreme Court clinched Republican George Bush's victory over Democrat Al Gore with a 5-4 decision involving ballots in Florida. Remember, the, the hanging chads, I think, were most at issue.
3: But Remember, it was a little more split than you're suggesting, too, because Breyer was uncomfortable with what was going on in Florida.
1: I think that justices appointed by Trump should recuse themselves, if nothing else, on the appearance of partisanship. They're not going to do that, but that they should.
2: Jane, you can hope, but that ain't going to happen.
1: It's not going to happen, but it should, if the court was really not going to be protecting its image and its partisan.
3: Again, I'm not completely objective on this, because I had just previously argued a case before the Florida Supreme Court and talk about a partisan court. And I think that perception pervaded what was going on in the Supreme Court, ultimately, because they felt like this was just some sort of one-sided recounting of votes without re- any regard of equal protection principles.
0: I've heard you say a number of times in previous shows, uh, I do listen carefully to you because I learned a lot. Actually, the states are not required to choose their electors through popular vote. They can do it in almost whatever form they want to. And you've made that pretty clear in past shows. So what prevents them from doing that now?
2: That is true, but it's not up to the Supreme Court to decide which electors are valid. So if you have, let's take, for example, North Carolina. So if you have Trump winning the popular vote narrowly, the legislature sending in one group of electors and the Secretary of State sending in another one, the Constitution clearly says it's up for the Congress to decide which of those are accepted and which isn't. Now, I'm hoping and praying that the Supreme Court won't get involved in that, because if it does, its legitimacy is gone.
0: I just want to repeat, though, what Ed Larson just said as close to verbatim as I can. He said, I'm hoping that the court doesn't involve themselves in these questions, because if it does, its legitimacy is gone. We'll be right back.
2: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Media.
0: Now, the likely litigation, which unless I'm hearing the wrong thing, seems like it's going to be over election fraud, uh, mail-in ballots, or what have you. It just seems that compared to the 2000 challenge in front of the Supreme Court, the likely litigation now over what votes to count and when to count them uh, makes the 2000 arguments about hanging chad seem rather tame by comparison. This This is a really serious effort, at least publicly, that the Republicans are making to suppress votes. I can't think of another reason why, and maybe Ed Warren and Ed Larson you can help me out. I can't think of another reason why the Republicans would be going so far out of their way to try to limit the amount of time available to
3: count votes when people can vote. I don't think they're trying to limit the amount of time. I think what they' the argument is that this, the legislatures in the states have been clear, and then judges are expanding. Uh, in one way or another, the requirements that are in contradiction to the, what the what the statutes uh, on a state by state basis provide. So that, I mean, it's partisan on both sides. We, we'll see. I I th- I think the court is going to try to stay away from all this, though. I really do.
0: And knowing that the Republican politicians have said publicly that Robert sold out, it would seem that the president and Congress who are responsible for nominating and confirming Supreme Court judges are in fact at odds with the court's own obligation to neutrality and its obligation for fairness?
2: I think there are two different things. I think the Supreme Court operates in a certain fashion And it really doesn't matter what the president and
0: the Senate think. Jane, I bet you have something to say about this.
1: Yeah, I think when you appoint justices for ideological reasons and not as genuinely excellent jurists, that alone is partisan. So I I appreciate the, the distinction you draw, Ed, and it's there. But I think that's why we are where we are. I think even the Federalist Society, which is having far too much influence in who the Republicans support, where they might not ask them certain litmus questions, there's no question that they're not going to support judges who have ruled certain ways in certain cases. And it's not just abortion, it's on gun rights, it's on on other elements of administrative law. It's very ideological. And with Kavanaugh, don't talk about the, the nasty questions he was asked. Talked about his own behavior. He's intensely political.
0: Ed, Trump has consistently said that the justices he appoints to the Supreme Court will vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, in 2016, he said, if I appoint enough judges, overturning Roe will happen automatically.
3: I completely disagree with that. I think, you know, first of all, let's go back a little bit. And, and I will say this I think, from the standpoint of the court's role, uh, the Roe versus Wade decision was a terrible decision. Not, because this is an issue that could have been, should have been, and would today have been resolved uh, by the political branches. And there would be some variation state by state. But abortions would be widely available and be just about where we are today. But instead, the court intervened and created a a right that was not clearly present in the Constitution. And so we've had this ongoing partisan fight for years. Having said that, this decision is now almost 50 years old, and it's been reaffirmed in Casey, which if it was ever going to be overruled, that's when it would be overruled. Now, that that's not to say, and there will be, and there are, pending cases trying to nibble around the edges of that right. And I think some of those are going to succeed and some are not.
0: One of the things that we love about the show is we put some really smart people on the show and had a smart person about a year ago in studio. I think you probably know who this was. And the question was, if Trump gets another judge which he just did, is Roe v. Wade settled law or would that decision be revisited or overturned? Can you guess what that smart guy had to say a year ago?
3: Okay, go ahead and play it.
0: It's been asked, is Roe v.
3: Wade settled law? I believe yes, probably, is the answer. The Supreme Court has overturned in the past a few very significant decisions. There's a very strong bias against overturning Supreme Court precedents, particularly interpreting the Constitution. I don't think Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned.
0: Even if Trump gets another
3: Even if, pick. I was just going to say, that's exactly what I was going to say, even if he gets another uh, a pick.
0: So it seems, Ed, you f- still feel that way today. Jane, do you do you believe that to be the I case? I honestly
1: don't know. I think uh, Roe v. Wade is also, has already been gutted in some respects. And I think rather than having it overturned, it just will continue to be gutted.
0: Let's move on to Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act. You know, a week from now, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments on the future of the Affordable Care Act. I think it was Chief Justice Roberts who cast the key vote, holding that the individual mandate was valid. It was considered a tax by by Congress, right? That's how it passed? It was
3: considered a tax by uh, john roberts uh, the congress really didn't consider it a tax so that's part of what the debate is and that's why barrett said boy it was a real stretch to say this was a tax when uh, the statute itself didn't say it was a tax and and indeed the legislative history for what it's worth was all pointing in the opposite direction
0: so now that the individual mandate has been eliminated is there an Affordable Care Act? Yes. So how do you expect this to go a week from now? Uh, Trump certainly said that he expects the Supreme Court will kill Obamacare.
3: And he's wrong. Uh, Because if if you look at the court's precedent last term involving the consumer agency established uh, during the Obama administration, the appointment of the leader of that agency was attacked on constitutional grounds that only the president has the appointment power and Congress can't circumvent the Article II power of residing in the president to select heads of departments and, offices and agencies. Uh, and so the issue came down to whether that statute was severable so that the statute could continue to operate and exist even if we strike down the selection criteria for the appointment of the head of the agency. Court said severable. Why do you think
0: Trump has been saying, you know, I have a beautiful plan? It's a beautiful plan, best plan there's ever been. And nobody has any idea what his plan looks like. Why do you, why do you feel we're in that position?
3: First of all, it is total, as Joe Biden would say, malarkey. I, I agree completely with, with uh, Biden on you that. You use score. that
0: term very well.
3: I do think that there is broad, widespread, unanimous agreement on this pre-existing condition issue, so that if you were to amend the statute or write a new statute, that's something that there's widespread agreement about. And that's, that's what happened when Obamacare was being debated. Republicans were all on board on pre-existing conditions. And then at the last minute, basically the Democrats, Obama took it away, wrote the statute along with Nancy Pelosi. And it was then, it was enacted on an, an entirely partisan basis. I mean, just by Democrats, because they had the House and the Senate. We could have had a statute that would have dealt with this issue in a way that I think has vast public support.
1: I think it's possible, but I don't think the court will do it for other reasons. I think the court is well aware of the impact of their decisions, and they know at this point if they threw it out hook, line, and sinker, it would be a hugely disruptive experience to the economy, to the insurance industry, not just to people who would lose their health care. It would be dramatic, the tectonic impact of that, the the instant tectonic impact of that change. And I don't think the court will go there.
0: I'm now going to ask each one of you, Ed, Jane, and Ed, in closing, to come up with one sentence. What can our listeners expect out of this election week?
3: I hope and expect that the election will go smoothly and that there will be no necessity for the Supreme Court playing any role, and that we take a step in the direction of bipartisan government. That would, it seems to me, entail the new President Biden confronting a Senate with, has, which has a very small Republican majority so that Senator uh, McConnell and President Biden, who are old buddies and who like each other and can accomplish things together, will be able to do that for the next four years.
0: So Jane, in one sentence... What can our listeners expect out of this election week?
1: I hope I'm wrong, but I think it will be a very close election that may not be decided on November 3rd.
0: Okay, Professor Larson, what can our listeners expect out of this election week?
2: I certainly hope that Ed's right, that it is a clear outcome that decides the election, ideally sometime very late on Tuesday night, but whenever it comes through, I hope that's what happens. I fear, though, that even if that happens, there'll be a lot of litigation. It may not make it all the way to the Supreme Court, but there will be a lot of litigation in the process. But I hope that despite this massive amount of litigation, observers, the American people, can look and say, yeah, I pretty well know what happened. That's how The people decided. And that outcome is then brought into reality with the sitting of a new Congress on January 3rd and then the inauguration of a new president on January 20th. And on that basis, America can go forward.
0: Well, there's a lot there. Thanks for that. You know, if you don't mind me throwing my hat in the ring, I think this is going to be a magical time when our country comes together in a peaceful way to restore its morals, take hold of its future, protect all of its citizens, and even re-earn the world's respect. I can hope, can't I? That's what I think we're going to accomplish this week.
1: I think it's what we can accomplish. The question is, will we?
0: I think we will. Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht, thank you so much for this show. Certainly a dynamic discussion. Ed Warren, boy, I hope you'll you'll come back and join us again because it's always just a spectacular conversation. How can people follow you if they if they want to?
3: Well, I, I can I can be reached at Berkeley uh, and Ellis emails. So that's about the only way I think.
0: Well, that's it for us. Meet Me in the Middle is produced by A.J. Mosley. It's edited by Brian Bolanski. Mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. And our executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please hit the subscribe button so you can easily find our next episode. We'll see you next week, everybody. And, oh, yes, as soon as you can, Zoom with someone you disagreed with politically and give them a virtual hug. We'll see you next time.
3: It will be okay. From Kirkco Media.